Spy Cops Info Podcast, a series on the secret undercover political police who infiltrated over a thousand campaign groups since 1968. Episode 27, Interim Report. Uh, yeah, so welcome to the Spike Ops Info Podcast. My name is Tom Fowler and I'm joined with... Kate Wilson. Jessica. And Chris Bryan. Yeah, it's been a while since uh, we did a recording. Um, so sorry for not being as regular as we used to be. This episode, we'll be looking at the Undercover Policing Inquiry, maybe like two weeks ago now, I guess, published their first report. I mean, it's been eight years. They spent 64 million quid. And there's, they, they published an interim report, which basically looks at tranche one of the undercover uh, policing inquiry. Uh, for those of you who don't remember all the, the jargon, uh, tranche one refers to formation of the unit up until 1982. So 1968 until 1982. This interim report wasn't originally planned, but given that it's been taking so long to get to this point, uh, the inquiry felt it was it needed to do something. It needed to show that it was actually you know, get going somewhere. We didn't have a lot of hope for what it was was liable to come out of the report. We, we weren't expecting much from the report. Anybody who's a regular listener to this podcast will know we don't expect much from the inquiry in general. But there were some things, there was a great deal of interest from the report. So over the next half hour, 45 minutes, however long it takes us, we're going to break down what the report said, what we thought was good, what we thought was bad, what was missing. And believe me, there's plenty that was missing. So, guys, what did you think? Chris, what did you make of the report? I suppose the headline which was picked up by the media, etc., was the fact that Mitting said that the special demonstration squad um, should have been wound up pretty shortly after it began. Uh, obviously, we don't think it should have be begun in the first place, but that is a pretty a relatively strong statement. The headline behind that, he said that all but three of the undercover deployments were not justified. So that's the good news from the report, I guess. Three out of several hundred, I think, groups. I don't know how many groups were infiltrated in tranche one. I mean, part of the problem is that they won't give us the full list of the groups. Um, and in fact, two out of the three groups that Mitting has chosen to say it was justified to infiltrate, he won't actually tell the public what they were. So it's very difficult to really assess. The one that he has mentioned is an English group called Provisional Sinn Féin, which he claims was funding the IRA, I, but we don't know anything about the other two groups. Yeah, there is there is another version of this report. Well, what we've actually seen is, is, I guess, is a redacted version of the report which was given to the Home Secretary, which does name those groups and includes the information from the closed hearings, which we were unable to attend uh, and which we know nothing about, uh, which refers to these much more serious, oh, this was fully justified behaviours, you know. Well, what, are, what are your thoughts, Jessica? I think, like you say, I mean, we weren't expecting very much from the report. I guess what I'm more concerned about is if you give, like, meeting two sides, so what the, you know, what the police have said and, you know, the other side, what the CPs have said, that, you know, he's he's really picking who he believes. And mm. so, you know, in the case of um, Vince Harvey, where he said that, you know, his relationship that he had, you know, was a couple of one night stands. And then, you know, he listens to Madeleine, who he liked her as a witness, you know, found her very believable. And so he believes her version of it. But then you've got other instances where he's just he's taken the side of the officer, but not really explained why. I think the other one is um, Diane Langford, where she has said that there was, um, I can't remember who it was, one of the undercover officers had been like recognised in a meeting. And uh, Diane Langford said that the officer then threatened the woman that was in the meeting to say, you know, basically, you know, don't say, you know, you know that I'm a copper or something and threatens her family in Ireland. And Mitting's like comments on that, he says, you know, he doesn't believe that, that actually happened, you know, that he doesn't believe that the officer threatened her. Uh, she would have known he could pose no threat to her family. You know, how does he know that? He doesn't know that. You know, it's like that's, there's no, you know, we've not got the evidence of why. I mean, if you think, so, you know, there's some undercover officer, you don't really know, like, where from, but he's in the group and he threatens your family. He knows your family are in Ireland and he threatens them. How do you know he's not going to, you know, do something 
to them. That's the point. Is just and but he's he doesn't believe that Diane Langford is credible. I mean, what she said. So she doesn't. You know, he believes the officer. And I think in too many cases he has taken the officers. You know, he's taken what they've said as being credible. You know, so I mean, I give evidence to the inquiry next year. And already I've had like one meeting, um, Women Deceived had a meeting with Mitting. And, you know, he already doesn't like me. So, you know, that's, it's going to be whatever I say, I don't imagine that he's he's going to believe. I think he's going to take the side of of Coles, who's, you know, our, he's, Coles is lying. That's the officer that I had a relationship with. He's lying and said it never happened. And, you know, this has just made me think, it doesn't matter what I say, he's going to believe Coles, you know, because... Coles is police and police don't lie, do they? Yeah. He, he thanked all the police who gave evidence. Um, you know, the, he didn't thank any of the um the, the non-state witnesses, you know. I thought that was quite telling. Sorry, Chris, anyway. I was gonna say this is Dave Robertson was the officer. Um yeah. so I mean <clears throat> Mitty, that is one example of one of the issues that runs throughout the report. It's Mitting's credulity in terms of the honesty of what the officers said throughout. Um, generally speaking, he classified their evidence as honest throughout, even when there was, I think, good reason to believe that I, they were perhaps you could class them as unreliable witnesses or with a track record of deception. So, for instance, the one I would pick on is Jeff Craft. Um, mm. He was a manager during the mid-1970s, and he basically oversaw two miscarriages of justice in, in, involving um, an undercover officer, cover name Barry Loder. And he was involved in basically nobbling the courts so that there was no danger of his of the officer being discovered as an undercover officer, and several other people were convicted in those cases. And in fact, two of those people now have been referred by, by missing himself to the CCRC, the Criminal Court Review Commission. Um, and yet Mitting says that he was an honest witness. An honest witness, he would happily prefer the cause of justice, which is kind of a bit of a weird combination in my view, but yeah. I think the, the, the correct term for it is takes the piss. <laughs> I was being yes. understated, Tom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... I think uh... It's it's quite hard. I mean, we're we're we want this to be entertaining. This you know, it's a podcast. People, we want people to listen to us. But at the same time, it's a really spectacularly boring report in a lot of ways. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the there's no summary. It's ninety five pages long. Um, I read all of it and did quite a lot of work to try and make it comprehensible. And and it's it's as with everything the inquiry does, it's not presented in a way that makes it accessible. It's not presented in a way that makes it something that people are going to want to know. And at the same time, the conclusions in it, when you dig through it and 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 really look at what's it what it's saying, are absolutely devastating for the police and for the spy cops unit. So I think I mean I think it's quite hard to get that across when you pick out the the little bits of what it's saying but but you know at the at the end of the report it basically drew four conclusions there were four points in it where it said that the uh identity theft the stealing of uh dead children's identities the forming of relationships and i think it's important that he didn't just say you know putting these offices in for a long time meant forming sexual relationships which obviously did happen and he said that you know it started in the 70s and became a perennial feature of the sds but he also talked about how putting offices in for such a long time meant forming deep and lasting friendships with people which is also really problematic the other two conclusions were Help it, me out here. <laughs> it was uh, positions of responsibility, wasn't it? Um, oh, yeah, which is also really interesting. Mm. You know, talking about how officers, although at the very beginning, one of the guys that set the SDS up said, you know, you mustn't take positions of responsibility. You mustn't be directing people's political activity. But, you know, they were going in, they were becoming membership officers, they were becoming treasurers, they were voting on important decisions. And, you know, the implications of that for our right to organise and for our ability to organise are really 
quite worrying, you know, if the police are going in and basically, you know, taking positions that change the direction of how people's political organising is going. And of course, they've got lots of resources. I mean, I've, I've you know, my, most of my knowledge comes from much later in the day from, from Mark Kennedy's operation, but, you know, that you can see when he gets involved in the G8 summit stuff, he goes straight onto the finance working group and there's discussions with his managers about whether he should be a signatory on the bank account or not and how important it is that he's in the finance group. But also he had so much more resources than us. You know, Mark would take on tasks in a meeting and then just send the list to his handler and say, sort this for me, will you? So, you know, we'd like take on printing leaflets. We need and, more of that kind of people. Yeah, we do need more of that kind of people. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, he basically he basically had a PA and he had a 200,000 quid a year expenses budget to to do what he was doing. And so, you know, the 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 power imbalance that that creates and the ability for them to actually control people's political organising is really problematic. Mm. I mean, we saw it really like clearly with the Troops Out movement where, I mean, essentially the leadership ended up being undercover cops and the entire movement was completely subverted from its original aim entirely. So another point actually where Jeff Craft seems to be an unreliable witness is that he actually denied that he knew that that undercover took the position of national convener for the mm. troops out movement but then as yeah. a, a memo actually says or actually uh, <laughs> well basically him saying that that undercover took that position himself jeff craft so he, he obviously did know <laughs> and then he obviously when confronted with that he goes oh okay uh, i don't know how i let that happen was basically his response <laughs> Yeah, that was Rick Gibson, wasn't it? He was like, Rick Gibson, um, yeah, yeah, he was yeah. like the London organizer of Troops Out movement, and then and then became the national convener. Yeah, one of the weird things about the report, though, it criticizes various aspects, like how we've just discussed, and it said it should have been abolished at X point in the nineteen seventies. It doesn't apportion blame for anything that happens to at least to anybody who appeared as a witness in the mm -hmm. in tranche one. So in some ways, now hear me out here, Mitting's analysis is a bit quite Marxist because uh, it's all about structure. <laughs> it happened, the, the fault lies with the structure, not with the individuals within that structure. I don't. I only, I only say that because I imagine Mitting wouldn't like that very much. I, I, would, I, I mean, it's also Marxist, known as, but... you know, don't hate the player, hate the game, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, his fourth point, just to like, um, was, was about the gaining entry into private homes. That was the, the fourth conclusion, which, you know, it, it was one of these things where just the whole basis of the unit was just, you know, driving a coach and horses through British law, really. But, yeah. Yeah, I've had the conversation about this with um, with someone yesterday and saying, you know, if they, you know, we still don't know. I don't know whether sort of they recorded anything in, you know, our house or, or anything like that. And, you know, it was a point that they would have needed, um, you know, to ask the home office if they wanted to tap our phones mm. but the fact that they could just you know we were in their houses they were in our houses and could have just recorded anything like you say with that you know they didn't need any further authorization than the undercover officer i find it interesting that angle of the trespass appears to have come from uh, charlotte kilroy's kind of transference from the ipt case uh, of that argument and i wonder mm. if that would have come up at all uh, if it had, because she pulled that out of the hat completely in the IPT, uh, Kate Wilson's IPT case, we were all just like blown away. Where's she going with this? What, what, <laughs> what is it? And now it seems to have become like an important feature of the uh, undercover inquiry. Lawyers, I mean, obviously, people who've spent their career in the law, like you know, conservative judges like Mittings, are gonna, that's going to be right up their alley, isn't it? So you can see why that that's has some some play within within that. Really interesting that it wasn't until Charlotte Kilroy made those submissions about, you know, well, you know, they, the police keep saying these these uh, operations were lawful, these operations were legitimate, and actually, it wasn't until Charlotte came along and said, "Well, what legal framework are you actually using to say that this was lawful and legitimate?" And the police were like, "Oh, legal framework, we've got we one of them." In, we filled in a form. <laughs> yeah, we wrote a. Uh... 
wrote uh, authorization. Well, they did in, in, in someone signed oh. and someone signed it. It was authorized. It was legal. Like, okay, that's interesting. We should try that. And the the, the <laughs> actually the inquiry hadn't really considered the legal framework either. You know, it wasn't until she mm -hmm. made those questions that they were like, oh, actually, maybe we do need to set out what the relevant laws are in order to actually look at what was done. And of course, once you do that, you know, nobody has done that since, well, ever until now, really, like the police never did it. The Home Office never did it. Nobody actually looked at what these officers were doing and said, was this even legal? And it turns out, no, it wasn't. Oh. Um, I should just, for our listeners, um, we are also joined by Ben, who did introduce himself, but um, is is that other voice you've just been hearing? Is that's not me or Chris? Hi, that's me. I didn't introduce myself. I was busy getting beer. <laughs> Smooth <laughs> professionalism of the Spike Ops Info podcast. But yeah, it's um, like the, 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 it's it's that thing, isn't it? Of like, well, they just assumed they could, so they did. That was it. That you know, they just assumed they could. So we've said this repeatedly throughout all the other episodes. They just didn't expect to get caught, so therefore mm -hmm. the, the phrase "legal framework" authorization just didn't, you know, in the in the special demonstration squad zero just didn't even just it was non-existent. So they just mm -hmm. didn't think they were going to get caught, basically. Well, they just thought no one would ever find out. I mean, that is literally what they said about the dead children's identities is, you know, mm -hmm. did you think this would actually cause harm to anybody? And they replied, no, we never thought anyone would find out. What if you one or two of the managers, or maybe it was earlier, even actually blamed the inquiry, yeah. stroke people who found out about it for the for the family's distress? Maybe it was yeah. actually an undercover, wasn't it? It was one of the undercovers. Oh, no, I'm, sure. I, I forget who. It was the one who looked like a, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Like a snooker ball. But, like, it, yeah. it, it was, it was like, irate about um, about how how incredibly, like, how, how, how it was the, the fault of campaign, these activists and this inquiry that these people had been had, had been told what they did. And, it, you know, if, if we hadn't been poking our noses in, there'd been no harm caused. Well, they don't know what won't hurt them. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's that's, that's right from like the, you know, the top all the way down to the, you know, the individual officers. And that is that this whole sort of, you know, they'll have protection, you know, nobody will ever, will ever know. So, you know, the undercovers did whatever they wanted to, thinking no one will know, you know, the managers appear to be no different. That's the, the entire sort of the premise of the entire SDS and MPOIU is that no one, no one will ever know. It'll be fine. I noticed that a lot in the statements from the undercover officers basically you know it was all a long time ago I'm kind of really pissed off that this is coming up now i had been assured at the time that we would have had the full backing of you know um, of the state this would never come out we would never have to be held accountable for any of this stuff and what is this now you know decades later that we're now having to answer for something when we were told we weren't going to have to answer for it not no, fair it's not fair <laughs> and I mean, actually yeah i don't it's a bit hard to get to is it after sort of been drafting a couple of profiles of the managers um jeff craft and trevor butler and although missing does say they are honest etc as witnesses he does sort of in a kind of passive aggressive way undermine all the managers judgments that what they were doing was justified because basically in their witness statements they more or less say we would have had the public support we were doing something worthwhile the deployments were justified but basically meeting has basically turned around and said not directly to their faces but in the report saying your judgment was was completely wrong Mm. So, uh, although I'm missing as a, you know, the report has a lot of sh shortfalls, he it does, you know, it may, as I say, in a passive aggressive way, does actually mm. say their judgment was completely, you know, rubbish. I mean, yeah, he specifically says if the public had become aware of what was going on, this would have immediately been shut down and it would have caused a lot of concern, which does rather fly in the face of what the police are saying. Of course, he also says, and this is this is one of the more interesting things in the report, and I think we're going to have to revisit this later, that although throughout the entire tranche one period, so 1968 to 1982, the police did not spy on the far right at the point, that he is satisfied that the reason for that was not political bias. Because he uh, believes them when they say they were shit scared of uh, infiltrating the far right, <laughs> which of course is bullshit. It's an excuse. They weren't, in, uh, 
scared of infiltrating them. They were them. Yeah, I think they knew. They probably knew what the sort of the far right were doing because they were actually at the meetings. But you know, as sort of in their real identities. Yeah, um, they, they had good sources in the far right. They had great sources in the far right. They didn't need to send infiltrators in, and they don't really specify what those sources were. But it's not hard to imagine. Mm. I mean, it was very blatant. The, the evidence given by some of the officers when they were being questioned at the inquiry, they were very open about the fact that you know the National Front weren't a problem. You know, I mean, they, they, we heard that time and again from several former undercover officers that they weren't a problem. The problem yeah. was the left. If the left didn't turn up and counter-demonstrate, there wouldn't have been a problem at all. I was going to say, that rather flies in the face of their other argument for why they didn't infiltrate the far right, which was, of course, that the far right were too violent and it would not be safe mm. to infiltrate them. So to say, on the one hand, to be saying they're not a problem, on the other, and on the other hand, to be saying that. It's very similar to MPOAU's uh, take on uh, targeting hunt saboteurs for violence perpetrated against them. So you don't infiltrate the hunters who are, by their own admission, the people causing the grievous bodily harm or, in fact, breaking the law when it came to the uh, the banning of the hunting. You'd still target the uh, hunt saboteurs. So, again, that, <coughs> that's an example coming from much later on. We're talking 2000 yeah. or 2005. Mm. But you see that kind of ideological bias that mitting is apparently blind to is something else that we're going to see throughout the rest of the inquiry i mean quite a few of the officers actually literally say the national front weren't infiltrated because in the cold war context they weren't a threat to the british state which is perfectly true it is in that i mean they're, they're loyalists um, for god's sake <laughs> same reason that you know that the anti-apartheid movement was surveilled but the activities of the South African Security Service were allowed to happen, straight cooperated with by them, because obviously apartheid South Africa was on the right side in the Cold War. Yeah, but of course this is not political. You know, you're making it sound like it's a bit political. You know, obviously, obviously it's not. You know, don't we can't forget meeting has. You know, it's just not political at all. I think yeah. another thing that came out was the really key role that was obviously played by MI5 mm. in deciding what the police were going to do. Bearing in mind that it's not political, but it was MI5 and their counter-subversion operations that mm. were pulling the strings on the SDS. I mean, that comes across quite clearly in the report. Well, yeah, it was very but much you, a client relationship. You, you know, they were, they were customers. I think maybe, I think maybe it was you, Kate, that mentioned it. In another context, that maybe Mitting is going to say in his final report that although it wasn't for the police to do these surveillance activities, it would have been perfectly fine for MI5 to do them. Maybe it was somebody else who mentioned that, but I think no, I, maybe I, there's I, a hint of that in the report. I've seen that elsewhere. I uh, I was at a talk um, given by Baroness Pauline something or other who was speaking as the House of Lords liaison with MI6, if I'm not very much mistaken. And the basic gist of what she was saying was, you know, these undercover relationships and this kind of shit show is what happens when you give a bunch of working class coppers a public schoolboy's job. And I think that, that yeah, there is, there is going to be, uh, admitting specifically in his conclusions, says, and I'll see if I can find the quote the question is whether or not the end justified the means and i have come to the firm conclusion that for a unit of a police force it did not and i think it's interesting that he has inserted that line because of course you know mi5 and uh, other security service operations in the uk are governed by exactly the same laws and exactly the same legal framework as the police in this um and so you know there's i think there's probably a lot of eyes and a lot of pressure behind the scenes on this undercover policing inquiry to try and minimize the impact that it is going to have on the activities of infiltration units that we know absolutely nothing about coming out of mi5 and god knows where else shall we talk about what isn't in the report yeah good calls isn't there Oh, there's God. loads of gaps <laughs> it's like more holes than cheese yeah dave smith if he was here would point out the word blacklisting or vetting's not mentioned at all mm. uh, for instance 
And despite that's despite, I think, in the in the last set of hearings, that was actually mentioned in the council for the inquiries um closing statement that he did sort of draw a line between the, the information in the subversion committees, the secret secret subversion committees, but he drew a lot a connecting line, albeit maybe a dotted one. Um between that and special demonstration squad surveillance and their collection of information, so that we and that's one of the gaps. And I think when I read the report through, I was quite shocked that of the things that weren't in there because I would have thought that if the, I mean my expectation was it was going to generally speaking cover all of tranche one, if not absolutely have final conclusions in them. So I thought it would have been a bit more polite just to let people know before and okay we're not going to deal with this issue now this is this is going to be the framework for this tranche one report because i think it might it was quite a shock to some people that issues that were very close to their hearts weren't mentioned at all yeah i mean the other thing so mitting kind of started the report with a foreword um where he makes the point that he's specifically not including a bunch of issues he doesn't actually even mention blacklisting in you know spying on industrial action or vetting in the list of things he's not going to look at it doesn't even get a mention there but uh, <laughs> but he does say that he's not going to look at the impact of male police officers on the women deceived into sexual relationships he's not going to look at the impact on the families of the officers he's not going to look on the, look at the impact on the surviving relatives of deceased children and he's not going to look at the purpose of gathering intelligence on family justice campaigns or the attitude of police officers and managers within the unit towards deceitful sexual relationships. He actually did say some stuff about that in the report, which having said that he wasn't going to, and what he said was basically that he believed the managers that they didn't know and had they known disciplinary action would have been taken which I think is a very questionable conclusion to draw. And we can maybe come back to that later. The other thing he said he wasn't going to look at, which I thought was quite interesting, because he didn't include it in the list of things that he was saving to later. And it's kind of sounded like he was basically saying, I'm not going to look at this at all, was uh, he says, I'm not going to look at some of the wider issues canvassed in submissions. For example, that the SDS was one of the instruments set up by a conservative state to suppress the aspirations of those who wish to produce radical change by political means. So basically, he's not looking at whether or not it was political policing. Mm. And that is something that he is obviously very keen to avoid, probably because he is part of the conservative state that sets up instruments to suppress the aspirations of those who wish to produce radical change. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I think, Something that we're going to have to keep pushing is that this was political policing. There was political bias, and you can't get away from that. You really mm. can't get away from that. Absolutely, it's something which, like all aspects of the British establishment, are like you know, we don't do that sort of thing here. Is you know, it's a key part of their the, you know, the whole thing of it with it all, isn't it? You know, we can't. That, that's like what they do in, in in the Soviet Union or something. It's not something which which happens in Britain. But I think it's I, I think it's key. We we keep banging on about that, and I think I mean, this is the wider thing. It's not the reason that there's an inquiry isn't because of like a sequence of like individual like uh, uh, scandals or something. It's it, it is a wider like structural thing of of political policing. You know, and we need to you know keep coming back to that really with our criticism of it all. You know. Yeah. Does anybody else want to talk about other things that were missing from the uh, from the report? I, mean, bearing, I have to bear in mind I haven't actually read the entire report, so probably I'm not the best to answer this. <laughs> I've just I've read the summary. I couldn't be doing with the whole thing. It, I mean, it was pretty like it was pretty hard going. I mean, like I've never um, I, I never intended to be the kind of person who read like these kind of things, uh, and like it was, you know, I really struggled to my way through, like just skim reading the damn thing to be perfectly honest but yeah i mean like huge kudos to to the uh to the summary which um was put together if anybody's interested you can find it on the police spies out of lives website i wouldn't direct anybody to read the actual report itself i'd, I'd suggest they read the summary the um the link will be in the show notes the fact that uh that it needed a summary and that there was no executive summary in the mm. officially in the document itself seemed to really work out well for us because who the hell is going to read <laughs> five pages plus another what 30 of appendix or something mm. insane like that. 
and then uh, gave the media a couple of hours to sit in a room and try to find some sense in it. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, crazy and played well for us, I think. I mean, yeah, I think the media coverage of mm. the report was quite fascinating because what we saw was the chair published the report, locked a bunch of journalists in a room for two hours, give them a chance to read it, and that was it. There was no press release by the public inquiry, no executive summary of what was said in the report. The police issued a slightly pathetic statement reiterating apologies that they supposedly made, but actually you could spend quite a while searching on the internet, try and find the apologies they were talking about and fail. Um, and we're still trying to chase down what apologies they were supposedly reiterating in that statement. Um, and that was it. And so all of the content came mm. from us mm. um, and we had, we found uh, like a, a press conference that we almost didn't even do ended up being live streamed on the BBC and Sky News for mm. like over an hour. Including an empty table for 20 minutes. Yeah, with with the BBC, <laughs> BBC journalists adding commentary and library footage of demonstrations from the 1960s and 70s on it. Um, I mean, it really was like unheard of the... Uh, media response mm. to our content and i think the reason for that was because everyone else was a bit like well, nothing to see here folks i was just saying like i think it speaks to the fact that like what we've seen is is an is a redacted version of the report that the the as far as what mitting was actually much more concerned with was the version that he delivered to the home secretary which includes stuff that we we don't get to see and it's yet again the the establishment talking to itself and the fact that we get to like a little window into part of it is not well, really any of their concern. It's actually the establishment talking to Suella Braverman. I can't imagine Suella Braverman reading the, reading the report. I no. imagine it was straight in the bin with comments about the blob and lefty lawyers. <laughs> um, I mean, I suppose there are probably some Home Office civil servants right. who are looking at what it says. But yeah, when when you when you put it like that, when you say this report was going to the to the Home Secretary, it's a slightly yeah. depressing yeah. and scary thought. To be honest, any any thought about the Home Secretary is slightly depressing and scary. I mean, they're only the worst Home Secretary is the last one. Yeah. I would None just of say, them are great, are they? No. No, that's the role of Home Secretary, generally. I would just say that uh, there were some papers who went out of their way to find quotes from Mitting to use, uh, rather than take stuff straight from uh, our own statement, our own uh, summary. Um, and one of those was that there is no, there was no political bias in the fact that they didn't spy on the right. That was one of the quotes, which uh, got used a fair amount. So you can kind of see his purpose in, in saying it, I and mean, it's clearly untrue. But you say it, somebody reports it, somebody else says that this has been said, and so on and so on and so forth, and it helps to maintain the lie. I was just, I did feel we should mention that the fact that uh, there was no. No mention at all of the evidence that Celia Stubbs gave um, mm. in the report at all, which is very it was very upsetting for her. She actually issued a written statement to say that um, Celia, of course, was uh, the partner of Blair Peach, who was murdered by the special patrol group uh, anti-fascist demo in Southall. The sheer disrespect shown to Celia Stubbs by this inquiry just continues a long line of disrespect by the British state against her. I mean, like. It, it is it is stomach churningly like foul the way in which, I mean like just horrendous like the 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 showing of that um that video of the of the funeral you know just completely unprepared oh yes we've got this secret recording of you at at the funeral of your murdered partner and we're just going to like throw it into proceedings and announced it's like what the fuck man Jesus like yeah. She really pissed them off, eh? Fair In further context, she was spied on from 1976, so three years before Blair's uh, murder, up till the mid-1990s. So you mm. would have thought that would have merited like one or two mentions within the in the mm. report. Yeah, I mean, I and also I think, you know, it's not just that Celia's evidence wasn't mentioned. It is that that demonstration and the death of Blair Peach and, you know, the the history of that came up over and over again in tranche one it wasn't it, it it's not a it's not just like a statement that didn't get a mention in the report it's like a really mm. significant incident that i think maybe is maybe mentioned once you know the fact that it happened um and there i guess it's possible that when um 
he says, I'm not going to draw any conclusions now about the purpose of spying on justice groups. You know, what he meant was, I'm not going to touch Celia Stubbs and the murder of Blair Peach until I've gathered more evidence about the other, you know, justice campaigns against people who died after contact with the police mm. um, or the bigger picture. So it may be that it's going to come up later on. But yes, it is It is horrifying the way that that has been happening. That's what I mean by the impoliteness because you, you would have thought that Celia at least would have been notified prior to the release of the report that that wasn't going to be covered rather than it being a shock absolutely another insult to her this just seems so blatantly rude mm. yeah. yeah I think there's there's quite a lot of sort of um expense you know a lot of consideration given to the police and you know how fragile they are and how you know not to sort of upset them and their families and that but I don't feel that that's you know extended to the CPs you know particularly as you say like Celia and I don't know I, I the more you know that I read this the more it comes out of sort of there's there's definitely the you know the them and us sides um you know and and exactly you know the the bias that meeting shows towards them you know it's that I think is it's more evident than I imagine that it it sort of it would be and I think that's you know that's one of the that's so that's going to be an issue in you know in any of the any more sort of proceedings you know if this is where he's going to start to um to show sort of where, where he sits on lots of things um yeah it doesn't I don't feel confident in sort of the the rest of the inquiry if this is sort of the you know the first the first hint of what we get of how was how he's you know how he's thinking about these things it doesn't fill me with um with hope I mean, I think there's an interesting point that, I mean, we've been pushing for a long time now for a panel uh, to sit alongside Mitting, a panel made up of people who understand institutional racism, who understand institutional sexism, who understand the kind of issues facing, and let's face it, the kind of issues facing policing today, this isn't just about the SDS, you know, these are the, the, the findings from this inquiry are going to be really important going forwards because the police isn't the police were put on special measures last june for these issues and mitting kind of implied before the report was published that we might once we've read the report we might want to reconsider <laughs> the need for a panel presumably because he felt that the fact that he would be writing a report that is devastating to the police uh, would make us feel like it wasn't necessary. You know, when you read the report and you see like the lack of sensitivity to so many of those issues in it, and yet he thought that this would make us change our minds <laughs> about his ability to judge on those issues. So he obviously, you know, I mean, it, it, the report is damning to the police, but it just misses on so many of the subtleties about bias and about prejudice that are exactly why a panel is required. Yeah, I think Mitting thinks that with this report, you know, suddenly we consider him one of us, you know, which is not, not quite. But he's, yeah, I mean, what he actually says, he stresses that it's not within his terms of reference to inquire into how or by whom the fatal injuries were inflicted, nor into the manner in which the MPS handled the subsequent investigation. This is um, about the death of Blair Peach. That's, I think that's the only mention that it got. I think that's an important point, what, whenever the final report comes out, I mean, these these big reports, maybe they're not read by so many people, but, you know, the executive summaries are widely reported and it is a version of history, isn't it? And what people like Mitting and the government don't want is a version of history with lots of state murders in it. They don't, yeah. they don't want yeah. those things repeated um, and, be, and be talked about in general. They don't want that to be a, part of the public conversation, do they? So mm. by doing that they, they they are creating a certain narrative of of history aren't they yeah totally and it's all about controlling that history right that's the whole that's been the whole bloody point of doing this kind of exercise from their point of view anyway and it's also it's the reason why we've gotten so involved with it right it's about like you know challenging that history because i think you know the the reality of the 
not just the undercover policing units, but the wider like infrastructure of repression has fundamentally altered the course of British history. You know, I mean, it's a wider point, but like, I, we, there, there's no, there's no two ways about it. We live in a very different country now. If the political movements that have developed in this country since 1968 were able to like, you know, flourish in the way that they actually did and which actually should have done, and like um, the kind of the levels of public support that those those causes had was you know reflected in in what happened that didn't happen because of and we can see it with the way in which that the far right wasn't suppressed and the, despite the fact that this was you know incredibly small numbers of people supported these groups yet they they went on and had, had a huge impact on british culture and and the way in which the state has has developed you know and we see that today but we're going very off topic from the fucking inquiry well, i'm going very off topic from the inquiry <laughs> interim report here that's not as relevant it's relevant yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, like, looking at what's missing from the report and the stuff that it says, I mean, looking looking forward to Tranche mm. 2, do we, do we know when Tranche 2 is going to be happening? It's, like, summer 2024, they're saying? Yeah, yeah, sometime well, 2024, I think. So originally, it was spring mm. 2024, and then but the, the inquiry issue, these update notes and note notably there was no it just said 2024 so that to me that means they might it might end up being autumn by autumn by, by the time trying to starts seems very likely I mean, to me it wasn't all that long ago yeah it wasn't all that long ago that the inquiry team were trying to tell us that Tranche 2 would happen in like maybe march next year and would even be here getting hearing from tranche three at the end of next year which i mean we didn't really take too seriously <laughs> and we, it seems that we're correct in that because now they're, they can't they even tell us when in 2024. For any of the other tranches, have they? They've just said that tranche two no. will happen in 2024 mm. and everything else has been kicked into the long grass. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. The, their initial excuse for why it was taking so long to get to tranche two is because they were preparing everything so that we would just go tranche two, three, four, five, six, like one after the other in quick succession. But there's been no mention of any of that for quite some time. And so many of the faces who run the inquiry have changed that, you know, it would be almost ridiculous to, to suggest, to, to even think that the current lot would honour what any of the previous lot had said. Or even know. <laughs> yeah, or even fucking know, right. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and this, and this is, I mean, I, I swear down, it's a tactic, you know, this, this that's how these things kind of are allowed to, to run on in the way that they have, you know? It, it may be a tactic. I have to say, it's not one that I think is necessarily going to work very well for them. I mean, it certainly hasn't so far, you know. I mean, apart from wasting decades of our lives having to keep up the pressure and keep campaigning, I think that there's a sense to which, I mean, first of all, the fact that, and this is something that came out quite strongly in the interim report and in the hearings for tranche one is the extent to which the movements that were active back then and that were considered to be you know enemies of the state are now pretty much all on the right side of history like right totally. you know so in the course of uh the 10 years that i was taking the police through the courts attitudes around sexism in the police changed very dramatically against them mm. and i believe that we got rulings in my case in 2021 that we never would have got in 2012 when we started yeah so yeah kicking stuff into the long grass is bad in some ways but i also think that you know and the fact that this story is just dragging on and on and on and just keeps coming back and keeps getting worse for them mm. you know and so you know, it's boring that they're making it last so long, but I, I am not totally convinced that it is entirely in their working in their favour. I mean, it's it's working in the people's favour who were in positions of responsibility because by you know most of them have retired from public life, so the impact on them is less than it would have been if things were still speeded up. I mean, by the time we get to tranche four. Um, even undercover officers who were undercovers back in 2011, they're likely to be retired, aren't they? Not just mm. in not that they wouldn't be in senior positions anymore. They would have, been, you know, because the police, generally speaking, still as far as I know, retire at 50 as a rule. 
mm. the government they have a full pension at 50 so they're all going to be retired aren't they mm. so there is that <laughs> um, i mean that's another interesting thing that happened i know that's not what we're talking about but jim boiling had a plenary mm -hmm. hearing last week um, another one uh jim boiling was a police officer who infiltrated Reclaim the Streets and Hunt Sabs in the 90s, had relationships with at least two women. He uh, he had a second disciplinary hearing over sexual relationships that he'd had undercover last week, mm. uh, which found against him. Uh, but it was quite interesting because the defence that he ran was that his boss and superior had also been an undercover officer and had had four relationships whilst undercover and also fathered a child. That's Bob Lambert. And that other undercover officers at the same time were also having relationships. And he basically, you know, ran on a defence of, I was only doing my job mm. and now I'm being hung out to dry, um, which is, I think, is going to get a bit interesting because... Of course, they were all at it, and it was systematic institutional practice to use these relationships in the undercover operations. And uh, to an extent, these undercover officers are being hung out to dry because, you know, actually the entire management structure was in on it. And uh, now their damage limitation line is, well, yeah, there were some bad officers in there and we failed to deal with that and we're dealing with it now. And uh, I think I think we might well see more of these undercover officers turning on their bosses and just saying, look, this is bollocks. You all knew what was going on. Um, and up until now, they've been holding the line uh, to a certain extent. There aren't that many of them who have, you know, one of, one of the points that we made in our closing statements to tranche one was that um, the police protect themselves. You know, and you can see it throughout the evidence that they gave in tranche one that, you know, they will maybe chuck a few sacrificial lambs. They'll, you know, they'll, they might speak ill of the dead, for example. You know, if there are officers who are now deceased, they might they might say, well, yeah, actually, yeah, he was a bit of a womanizer and everyone kind of knew it. But, you know, but they won't say anything that will implicate each other. And the managers, it's very, it's very rare. And even to the point of ridicule where you have those two managers who claimed to never have served together, not know each other and have no recollection of each other. And actually the documents show them overlapping by several months and both being involved with dealing with a case where an undercover officer was caught having a sexual relationship. Um, and Mitting, that, those are incidentally the two officers that Mitting describes as two honest witnesses genuinely trying to give a proper account of what was going on and clearly failing. Um, and he finds that they did know each other and they did work together. Um, but, uh, and I think it's, that's, that's also interesting is that basically these, these officers are liars. I don't even think it's libelous to say that, you know, that was their job. They are trained professional liars and they're gonna lie. You know, that is the policing culture and that is what they're doing. We've seen that that is what they're doing. They are protecting the police as an institution and they're protecting themselves and their colleagues. And Mitting does not want to see that. I imagine Mitting doesn't want to see that in part because having a bunch of liars giving evidence to a public inquiry makes a bit of a mockery of the public inquiry. So unless there is really, really clear evidence that they are lying, in which case he says, in this instance, I find that, you know, the alternative account is preferable. You know, he's just going to believe what they're saying, because otherwise, what do you do? If you say, well, you know, it looks like all of my witnesses are lying. What do you do? I mean, I've, I've wandered a bit off topic, I think. But uh, <laughs> um, I mean, one of the things that wasn't, I mean, there's the pragmatic argument, isn't there, for what how Mittings treated the police witnesses saying that, uh, he's been very kind to them, so all the rest of them will turn up because I know they're going to be treated with mm. kid gloves mm. when they get there. Going back to say, but the 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 evidence that the managers gave, even if you're being generous to them and saying they were being as honest as they could, given given their memories and how long ago it was, etc., 
given that their memories were clearly faulty and missing does missing does say that they clearly were mistaken then they must be counted as unreliable witnesses in that sense at least that, that their evidence is not credible not necessarily because they're lawyers which is we think we think but at least because they, they clearly don't remember stuff clearly and accurately I mean, I think it's going to get interesting as we go forward, because, of course, there's more documents, particularly once you get into the digital age. I believe that for tranche four and for like, well, tranche, I guess it's tranche four, three and four, uh, for the MPOIU, they have something like 50 million files. I think that's that was that came out in your case, I think, didn't it, Tom? That Yes. Yeah. You know, they've got millions of mm of digital files and so you know the, the those kind of faulty memories are going to become you know easier to contrast with stuff that actually got written down which is where you know in a, in a lot of the instances you know unless unless we have other witnesses from our side coming forward um and i'm not sure that my memory is all that much better than your average octogenarian police officer but uh I mean, you'd yeah. be hard pressed to be as bad, mate. Do you know what I mean, like the, 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 the bingo scorecard, we were, you know, of like, I can't remember. It was a long time ago. I don't I mean, recall. I don't recall. Yeah. You know, I mean, Jesus Christ, it was painful, wasn't it? You know, yeah, and it was I, the things I, that I, they I, didn't recall that were um, the things, anything that could have made them look bad, or yeah. any sort of anything that would have like admitted sort of some kind of like liability in that. It was always. No, I just no, I just don't remember. Mm. You know, it was it was. I mean, it was embarrassingly obvious. Sort of, I was sat watching it, and uh, yeah, it was. It wasn't even a sort of a convincing um, lie at the time. No, it was a no comment interview, essentially. But you yeah. can't give a no comment interview to a public inquiry that has given you immunity from prosecution. So, uh, so yeah, the uh, alternative is I don't recall. I don't remember. It was a long time ago. I, I, I totally get that, that that strategy of admitting of like he's got to be nice to them, otherwise because they could just not turn up, right? Do you know what I mean? It'd be it'd be it wouldn't could be they, surprising. I'm not actually sure what the rules are under the Inquiries Act. I'm not sure they can just not turn up. They, well, missing maybe it was even pitched for this. If they do have the powers, if they're in the UK, they can make them give evidence. But I'm pretty sure. It, it was missing or even pitched for the said that they wouldn't use those powers to compel right. them to appear. I think they said they wouldn't use those powers against us. I'm not sure they've said they wouldn't use those powers against the police. I, I, might, I might be wrong. It was a long time. It would have been in the preliminary hearing, so yeah. it was a while ago. Anyway, yeah. if they start refusing to show up, we'll see. Is there anything else about the the, the interim report people want to want to comment on? <laughs> There's one thing that I'm um, looking for, and actually, that's I'm looking to to try and find it. But they've they've said that um, I think whether it was in closed uh, hearings, but the officers or somebody mentioned having sort of like the I think it wasn't two one night stands and a grope or something. Oh, that was in the risk assessments. There was one of the officers. Oh, HM one five five. Then I think um, one of the officers. Hold his risk assessment analyst. Oh, yeah, I've got it. I've got it. Phil Cooper, HM155, is recorded as having had two or possibly two or three, possibly more, sexual relationships, and the encounters mm -hmm. would have followed drink. He gave conflicting evidence to risk assessors and to the inquiry. However, admitting accepts that these relationships did take place. Like no one, apparently no one, no women had come forward to give any other sort of evidence i'm not even sure actually if that is the one kate um but no no other woman no woman has come forward to give evidence about that but the like one of the reasons is because they've there's no um cover name so yeah. it would be you know we're going back a long way a, a long way and said so, you know no women has come forward to give any other version of that but if they don't you know sometimes a name is is you know quite useful and mm -hmm. It's almost as though the inquiry is, you know, surprised that they haven't come forward um, and given any other account of it, you know, but it's not bring up the fact that we haven't released the name. So, you know, that's that's why if they if they don't, then you can't have like witnesses if they don't know who who the officer was. 
I don't know, it's still, it's one of the things that we originally sort of fought for was more, um, was more transparency and things, you know, when you're talking about this, this long ago, you know, does he, you know, and the risk to the officers and that, you know, these are the people that are in their 70s and 80s now, you know, what's, you know, there's no, I mean, the, the or they might be embarrassed, some of the officers might be embarrassed if people found out who they, who they were back in the day, but you know, I mean, hopefully going forward, you know, there's there's going to be, let me say, Kate, more sort of like digital evidence and that and photos and things. But yeah, so about, about two different officers, HN 302 and HN 21, the, the female involved has not given evidence. So Mitting chooses to believe the officer. Yeah, I've, I I believe that neither of those officers he has published their cover names yeah that's it after after an evening in the pub um this officer and a female activist went to his cover flat where they had protected sex intercourse by joint agreement admitting states that he's not heard from the female activists without recognizing that the inquiry has chosen to restrict hn302's cover name and there is no way this woman would even know she was deceived in this relationship so what we could do is uh, put out a request for anyone that's kind of recognises that encounter without knowing the name to come forward. Yeah, anybody who has ever talk. had sexual intercourse, <laughs> protected sexual intercourse by agreement after a night in the pub in somebody's flat. Please uh, come please forward. Please come forward. Please contact Yeah. John Mitting. Contact John Mitting directly. Yeah, between, uh, what years was it? I think like between like 69 and 73 or something. So that, you know, Four years, yeah. Perhaps we can see what, yeah. Let's see what. Let's ask Twitter to find, to find them. That's not actually a bad That's idea. Not a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> has, has missing got a Twitter account that we can spam? Um, Jesus Christ! I mean, he barely can seems to know how to use the bloody the, the audio when he's at the inquiry. I can't imagine him doing any kind of social. Sir, media. you're on mute. Sir, yeah. <laughs> sir, you're on mute. <clears throat> Yeah, well, here's another one. Yeah, HN21 was married when deployed. He said that he had protected sexual intercourse on two occasions. They're more worried that it was protected sex, aren't they, than actually than anything else. Um, on two occasions with a woman attending a course, he admitted to kissing and fondling another woman on the same course. The inquiry has made efforts to trace the women concerned without success. Subject to the possibility that she may be traced and may contradict this account missing chose to believe the evidence given by hn21 was the truth but yeah again any woman that's had um protected sexual intercourse on two occasions with um somewhat with hn21 yeah no name given again it's ridiculous like, like we said at the beginning we didn't expect much from uh the interim report we didn't get a great amount of much but the i mean the the, the headline uh, thing of you know that the, the unit should be shut down was great to have but once you start digging in there it's just yet more in being infuriated by the whole bloody thing yeah absolutely it's you know i mean i like I say i'm due to give evidence at some point next year and um yeah and part of me thinks you know is it actually is it worth it because i don't think you know, the fact that I've been quite critical about, you know, the inquiry and several things, you know, and also criticised Mitting, you know, himself, it's, you know, I've probably shot myself in the foot because, you know, it's going to be down to whether or not, you know, he believes me or, you know, the liar Andy Coles. So, yeah. Your I'm coverage expecting... of the inquiry has been excellent. You've you've followed proceedings with sense and good grace and called things as they actually are. And I would recommend that everybody, everybody follows. What is your Twitter handle again? Um Jessica Me Too. Two with a number two, yeah. Yes, um, yeah. everybody follow that. I mean, if you if you if you want to have like sensible insights into what's happening with the inquiry, I it's the most sensible account on, on that. It's with sarcasm mm -hmm. and foul language and um Yes. It's the value. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one retweets it. No one that sort of, you know, police spies out of lives won't retweet it because I do. It just won't. Oh, and yeah, I know you do, but you you also swear, Tom. <laughs> I, I, I also do if I ever log into Twitter, which is not very often. <laughs> uh, well, I won't be able to. Tom, you're going to have to tweet for me when I'm giving evidence. Sure. 
looking forward. Yeah, yeah. In theory, I mean, it it, it feels like an incredibly long way away again. I don't, I don't actually believe it's going to happen next year. I, I mean, maybe it will, but I can easily see it being the year after. I think I was initially told I'd be giving evidence in around Easter next year, but then I was also told that I would get disclosure in September last year, and I still haven't had it now. So, have you not had anything yet? Nope, nothing. Bloody hell! Yeah, behind, don't they? Yes, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's ridiculous, and you know, sort of all the hoops that I've got to jump through to sort of name people that I'm able to talk about things with. You know, because it's going to be, it's going to be, I think, quite traumatic to be sitting there and reading through basically, you know, the Coles' account of of everything, you know, given that he's, you know, he's trying to sort of, he's trying to call me, you know, an extremist and all this crap that he's said. And just like to, you know, the accounts that, or the way that the reports are written, you know, sort of like just you know, making fun of the activists and just sort of that disrespect and that it's going to be difficult to to read it. And, you know, essentially I'll be sat reading it on my own. So, you know, I have to nominate people who will be allowed to, that I'll be allowed to talk to about it. And so like, they've all got to have um, signed restriction orders and everything. It's, yeah, it's, um, there's a lot of hoops. One of the things that the Boiling Employment Tribunal <clears throat> Disciplinary Tribunal said apparently was um, that weary, the term that undercover officers from a certain date refer to activists as, is actually a pejorative, a prejudiced term, which is quite an interesting thing for it to to say, I think, because it, it speaks against Mitting's idea that it wasn't a bias, and clearly it won't be. It's a bit odd even to try and be put in a position when you're trying to argue that there wasn't a political bias. But that is actually what he said, but it's clearly just another bit of evidence which which proves that there is there was a clear bias within the unit. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is probably a conversation for another time and a whole other podcast, really. But um, I am an extremist. I was an extremist. I still am an extremist. Um, <laughs> and I don't think that makes any of what happened okay. And uh, in some ways, I'm quite looking forward to giving evidence. To the public inquiry because I think you know I th th this this idea that you know in some kind of context it is appropriate to to spy on people for the political beliefs that they have and you'll see in a, in a lot of the MPOIU's authorizations there are phrases that are essentially referring to thought crime mm. they were spying on us because of what we believed they were you know they were spying on us because maybe at that time believing that climate change was a real thing and that we needed to do something about it was an extreme position it's not an extreme position anymore and that is the point about extreme political ideologies is they open up political space for ideas that eventually become mainstream and they you know we they are an essential part of you know a healthy functioning democracy you need to be able to think outside the box and that makes you an extremist and it doesn't make you a legitimate target for police buying and i think we need to push that i mean there are the uh, authority the authorization for mark kennedy that the ipt very clearly found was not a legitimate and justified reason for spying on people used the word Extra variations on the word extreme and extremist 20 times in four pages and uh, that's not enough it wasn't enough for the investigatory powers tribunal and i doubt it's going to be enough for the inquiry although i think mitting is going to find it is going to be an easier person to convince than uh, because of his own innate political bias i mean it's it's quite interesting that i think in some of the meetings that people had with um with mitting somebody asked him you know have you ever been to a demonstration and he was he was oh god no you know it was that sort of horror for the thought of him going to you know going to any kind of demonstration um you know as though that was some sort of extremist you know extremist thing that was I forget which group it was that asked him, but, you know, that's, I think, very telling of just what he, you know, I mean, why would he? What has he ever, you know, I don't know what he would ever have to sort of, you know, complain about, 
is it what you you can't beat the staff anymore you know i don't know what um what he was what a man in his position would have to um you know to to demonstrate about is there anything else anybody wants to add about the interim report i don't think so i think sort of like we've gone backwards and forwards over most of it haven't we yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks for joining us uh, on the Spike Ops Info podcast for this chat. We'll hopefully be doing, like, the next episode won't be as long a gap as it was between this one and the last one. Um, but you never know. It might be. Who knows? <laughs> Please support the podcast uh, by sharing it with your friends um, and giving us a review on whatever platform you listen to it on uh, and encouraging other people to subscribe. Uh, if you want to uh, get in touch with us, you can find every all the previous episodes at spycops.info. Um, cheers for listening. Cheers. Bye. Bye. <laughs>